For those of you that may be new or don't know me, my name is Paul Graham. I'm lead teaching pastor here, and we are currently in our second official week, kind of the third message, but the second official week of a series on Philippians. And um, as was mentioned, there are life groups going on where you dig deeper into this beyond the message, and if you're not in a life group, please let us know so that we can get you connected, and uh, you can go further into the Word through the week. As you remember from last week, um, Paul opened up his letter to the Philippians with, with four big encouragements. Basically, Paul is trying to reassure this sending church. He's a missionary. He's kind of the evangelist. Well, he is the evangelist that planted that church, and they have supported him in ministry, and now he's in jail, and uh, they're concerned for him. And, and last week we saw he said, basically, be reassured. The gospel does just fine in hard places. Don't worry. Don't fret. I'm not depressed by my heart circumstances. In fact, I rejoice in jail because I'm loved and supported by faithful people like you, and, and I love you. Be reassured, the gospel's thriving. In fact, the gospel's doing better than ever. It's better that I'm in jail and not out on the street. The gospel is, is doing even better that I'm in jail. Don't be afraid about my ministry either. I'm not worried about the fact that there are apostles out there who are opponents of mine or that they are you know, bitter about me and they're out there trying to get some advantage. In fact, my opponents are doing my job for me, which is awesome. And, and finally, he says, don't even worry about my life because I don't. I'm not worried for my life. I'm not afraid to die. I would rather die given the choice. And anyway, I, I know that I'm going to remain with you for more ministry. So so you remember, he's, Paul's basically starting this letter saying, don't worry, Philippians. Just reframe everything that is happening to be understood through the lens of the gospel. The gospel's got me. The gospel's got you. The gospel thrives in hard places. Nothing stops the gospel. And now he's going to shift his attention away from himself. He's done his ministry report. He's done his missions report. He's encouraged the Philippians about himself. Now he's going to shift the attention and give the church he's writing to, and us, a firm imperative. An imperative is a command. He's going to talk about them and what they need to do. And Paul opens up this next section of his letter this way, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. What a, what a concise and penetrating command that is. Whatever's going on, whatever your circumstances, whatever you're feeling... This should be every disciple's starting point. Are my life choices worthy of the gospel? Am I living a life worthy of the gospel that saved me? What else could be a higher calling on our lives as disciples of Christ than to live it worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what we want to do. And, and Paul says, live your life worthy of the gospel. It's what Paul wants for his Christian friends. It's what we should want for ourselves. It's what we should want for everybody around us. As we sit and have a coffee with someone wrestling with a decision or, or struggling with the consequences of a choice or suffering the obstacles of the world or trying to decide how to respond to any opposition or affliction or difficulty, a first question you can ask before you even get the sugar and the milk into the coffee is you can say, what would be worthy of the gospel? That's the question we have to answer. Whatever we come up with while we're sitting here, the question is, Will it be worthy of the gospel? Because that's the life we are called to live. It's a good question. What would be worthy of the gospel? And I'm sure the Philippians would ask it of Paul. 
What is that life worthy of the gospel? That is what question is begged. But don't fear, because Paul's going to answer them. More than anyone, Paul knows the Christian life. The people of God are going to face difficulty. And so he wants these Philippians to know, in the context of opposition, in the context of conflict, in the context of suffering, how do you, Philippians, how do you, Christians, live a life that's worthy of the gospel in the face of that? And that's what he's going to tell them in three short sentences. But Paul is a master of packing a lot into a little. And so he's going to then tell them in these following verses what that worthy gospel life looks like. Let's pray. Father God, yeah, wow, this is what we want. We want to know how we live this way. And so open our hearts, open our minds, cause us to inspect our own circumstances and hold them up in light of what Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is calling us to as disciples. And that this is something that we can do. This is something that by your Holy Spirit you've empowered us to be capable of. And so, Father, show us now in your word how we live a life worthy of the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. So it's Philippians 1, 27 to 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Amen. The first thing that we see here is that Paul is assuming that Christians, disciples, these Philippians, are going to live their life as citizens of the gospel. The phrase there, manner of life, is poltevime uh, in the Greek. And politetevame, you get sort of politics out of that, you can kind of see it in there. Politetevame is the root meaning of being a citizen of some state or some city. So Paul doesn't use that word by accident. He says, when you live a life in a manner, the live a life in a manner is be a citizen of. Be a citizen of the gospel. Be a, be a good citizen of the kingdom that you are called to. Live your life as gospel citizens, as members of the Messiah's kingdom. In other words, there's a certain way we're expected to act as citizens. As he's writing to the Philippians, remember it's a Roman colony. Rome and the Roman Empire was big on citizenship. They had all kinds of laws and decrees and bylaws and systems of citizenship. And so Paul uses this word to say, you need to be citizens of God's kingdom. Sort of like be a good Canadian, learn how to skate, enjoy the winter, put maple syrup on everything and be polite. You do those things, you're worthy to be called a Canadian, right? Paul's saying this is how you are worthy to be called a citizen of the kingdom or a gospel citizen. It's a manner of life. It's not just a one-time thing or a sometime thing. It's a whole way of life. And we've talked about times before in the last few months about our posture or our stance towards the world and towards life. How do we hold ourselves in regard to our circumstances in a way that is worthy of the gospel? That's what Paul is driving at. 
What is our citizenship? What is our stance to the world? And Paul says there is a worthy way to live as a citizen. And he adds to the end, whether I come and see you or am absent. Simply put, Paul is just saying, whether I'm there or not, I want to hear good things about you. Remember, he's just recently mentioned in the verses previously that he anticipates being released from prison because of their prayers and with the health of the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm convinced I'm going to rejoin you and do much fruitful ministry. And with, but he doesn't want their courage to be based on him and his presence and coming back to them. Paul may be somewhat worried that the Philippians think that they need their kind of commander-in-chief in order to do well in their worthy living, or, or that their courage as Christians is pinned on him getting out of jail and coming to them to you know, stir them up as their commander. But he knows that may not happen right away, and Paul doesn't want their courage to be pinned on him. Rather, he's going to give them two other important places for their courage to land. He says, you, don't, you can do this without me. You don't need me. There are other places where God has provided you the grace to be able to live this worthy Christian life. So what is it then? What does he want to hear about them? What worthy Christian life is he expecting them to live? Well, he uses four different clauses all in one big sentence to sum it up, and it comes down to standing firmly not fearfully. This is how gospel citizens live. Firmly, not fearfully. He says, you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving, side by side, for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. That's one compelling description of what a worthy gospel life is going to look like to Paul in the face of opposition what he's looking for in his Philippian friends, what good report he wants to hear from his disciples. And we'll look briefly at each of these clauses. The first, Paul uses two statements side by side that reflect one another for emphasis. He says, standing firm in one spirit, or pneuma, with one mind, psyche, striving. So it's almost like a mirror, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving. These are parallel or reflective statements. And what we understand here is that a life worthy of the gospel takes effort. Here's the main point. Paul puts it first. He says it twice. Stand firm, striving with unity of spirit and of mind. The Christian life in the face of opposition is going to be one of steadfastness, of firmness, of some striving, of some effort. The Christian life is not effortless. And Paul's going to explain one of the reasons why in the next sentence. But let's just absorb that truth for a moment. The gospel does not come to people and tell them that their life will now be effortless because they've received Christ, that they will have an easier life because they are a Christian. The gospel makes promises that their life will be better, insurmountably better in the long run as a Christian, but better in this life as well, better, although is not easy. The Christian life will be more joyful, more awake, more alive, It will be more redeeming, more profitable, more encouraging, more loving. The gospel brings life and brings life abundantly, but it doesn't make life effortless. It does not make life easier. Jesus never promised easy or effortless. A couple of decades ago, maybe longer, there was a popular, if somewhat misguided phrase tossed around that said something like, let go and let God. Now, that's not entirely wrong. 
There is a sense in which we do surrender to God's will and God's work in our lives. It is right that it is not by our might, but by God's might and the spirit that we accomplish works of the kingdom. But the phrase is awfully reductionist and simplistic in that it is wrong to imply there is no work for us to do as Christians. Jesus said his disciples have a cross to carry in Luke 9.23, and then he went on to say that anyone who puts his hand to the plow and then takes it and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. I don't know if you've done any plowing with a hand plow behind an ox, but it's not easy. It's not effortless. I don't know if you've ever carried a cross. It's not easy. It's not effortless. So Jesus has not promised effortlessness. He says, in fact, there's a cross to carry, there is a furrow to plow in the Christian life. And here, Paul says that the Christian life will be one of standing firm, not shifting, not moving, not getting blown about by the winds of culture or opposition. It will be one of striving. At the very least, the Christian life is going to be a life of swimming upstream against our flesh and against the world. It will take effort to stand firm. It will take effort to strive. But he goes on and he says it's in one spirit and one mind. And so he introduces in that way a key element of our unity of striving. This is not a striving that Paul envisions the Philippians will be doing on their own or that we will be doing on our own. It may be near impossible for a disciple to do this on their own. Because he doubles the emphasis as well, saying side by side. In in one spirit and one mind, then he doubles down side by side, just, just to be clear. Paul sees the whole Philippian church standing firm, standing tall, resisting opposition side by side. And I I picture them linked arm in arm as they stand to hold each other up. A life worthy of the gospel is a life knit together with other believers, Paul would say. We're not lone sheep out in the cold facing the winds and the storms of change, facing the wolves of the world on our own. We are able to stand firm and strive because we are side by side in unity of spirit and mind in a church. God's people gathered together. A life worthy of the gospel then is lived in Christian community where we're of one spirit and one mind. And we're striving. And and what is it we're striving for? Paul just keeps digging into this worthy gospel life. And he says, what are you striving for? You're striving for faith in the gospel. You're going to be a worthy Christian. You're going to be a worthy church. You're going to be side by side. You're going to be putting effort. And you're going to be striving. You're going to be striving for this goal, for the faith of the gospel. A life worthy of the gospel weighs everything according to the gospel. Notice here that Christians are not striving to maintain our middle-class suburban lifestyle. We are not striving for our personal rights and freedoms that we've become accustomed to in our empire. We are not striving to hold on to the good old days that we're just more comfortable with. We are not striving to resist change just because we don't like change. The areas where Christians stand firm, where we strive, must always and only be for the gospel, for the things that matter to Jesus. Too often we see the church, especially in North America, up in arms over cultural or political change that has more to do with our lifestyle than it has to do with gospel citizenship and the progress of God's kingdom. Too often what matters most to us are matters of indifference to Jesus, or worst, what matters most to us run counter to the activity of Jesus. You understand that Jesus is calling a people to himself, 
throughout history. He is calling sinners. He is calling the impoverished. He is calling the weak. He is calling the poor in every sense of the word. He is calling the undesirables to himself. That's what Jesus is doing on his mission. And too often our mission is not aligned with him. We are fighting and we are striving, but we're not fighting and striving for the things that Jesus is fighting and striving for. He's trying to move his kingdom and his mission forward through you. And meanwhile, you, and put me in that category, are trying to build your kingdom and accomplish your mission. I'm not always a willing participant in what Jesus is doing with me. So sometimes I'm standing firm and I'm striving and I'm suffering. But not for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of me. And Paul says, nope. You want to live a life worthy of the gospel? You're striving. You're standing firm for one thing, the faith of the gospel. The gospel, then, is the standard by which we weigh every motive. What am I suffering for here? What am I striving for here? What am I standing firm on? If it's not the gospel, chuck it. This is what you stand firm on. And finally, the sentence concludes, not frightened in anything by your opponents, Living a life worthy of the gospel means living a life that fears nothing. And I I looked at this word frightened here, and it's sometimes interpreted alarmed, and I thought, I I wonder what he means by frightened. He just means don't worry or don't get caught up or don't be alarmed. But then I looked at the Greek, pteril. It means to be terrified, to be shaken, to be afflicted by fright. So so Paul doesn't mean just, like, don't be uncomfortable or don't be a little bit worried. He says, don't be terrified. Nothing your opponents do should cause you fear, should terrify you, should scare you, should cause you great concern or shake your confidence. A life worthy of the gospel has no fear of what our opponents are up to. And it takes effort to not be shaken and terrified sometimes. The fact that Paul says that you might be terrified and frightened and that you shouldn't means that in our Christian life, Paul completely expects us to face frightening things. You don't have to command people to not be afraid if nothing frightening ever happens. So if if Paul says worthy gospel living means leaning into unity and community and gospel-centeredness in order to not be afraid then we are going to sometimes expect to face frightening things. But Paul says kingdom citizens don't react with fear in the face of frightening things. Not only that, we don't stir up fear about what our opponents are doing. We don't spread anxiety among the ranks to cause them to worry about, have you seen what they're doing or what they're doing or what's happening? A worthy gospel life is not about fear. It isn't Mother's Day, but I'm going to quote Proverbs 31 anyway. (laughs) Little pastor joke there. Because every believer can be encouraged to take on the character of the godly woman portrayed there. This applies to everybody. Describing her, it says, strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. That's gospel living. We laugh at the future. We laugh at whatever plans our opponents have. There's no fear. Because as we learned last week, the gospel thrives in hard places. In fact, it does better in opposition. So worthy gospel living, and living a life worthy of the gospel is one without worry, without fear. It's laughing at what is to come. 
So far, Paul's command is to conduct themselves as citizens of the gospel, standing firm in unity, striving for the gospel purposes without fear. And then he adds that we will be confident that way of our salvation. He says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So living a life worthy of the gospel, Paul tells us, is a cause for Christian assurance, for confidence in where we stand with God. Paul says, this is a clear sign. Well, when you see this is a clear sign, you've got to look back and see what is the this that he's talking about. You know, and it's kind of a cumbersome couple of sentences grammatically, and I'm going to paraphrase it in just a second. But the this is the striving together. Paul's describing people who are steadfast and fearless in the face of opponents to the gospel and people in unity side by side together in that fearless fight. So the this points to that kind of Christian life. That kind of Christian life is a clear sign. It's a strong assurance of something. Well, what does the sign say? What does it tell us? Paul says it's a sign that our opponents are on the side of destruction and that we are on the side of salvation. Living a life worthy this way, and you have a sign, you have assurance that you are saved and that that salvation is from God. Paul's just making sure they don't start thinking that their salvation is because of their striving and their effort and because of their unity and because of the opposition and the great work that they're doing for the sake of the gospel. He says, that is a sign, not that you've saved yourself by your effort, but that your salvation is from God. And you see the distinction Paul is making. Successful effort in the Christian life is not to say the way you are saved. It's a sign that you are saved, that your salvation already is from God. And just to make sure they understand that distinction, Paul throws in another sentence, just to make it really clear what he means. He says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only, first of all, believe in him, that's your salvation, your faith, but also, secondly, suffer for his sake. There's two things you're granted. There's two things you're gifted as Christians. That you receive as a gift from God. Not just one thing. You're granted not only your faith, your belief in Christ, that's for your salvation, but you are also granted as a gift suffering for his sake. And that's for your sanctification and for your assurance. The second part needs a little bit of unpacking to understand and to see where it appears in what Jesus taught and in the rest of scriptures. Because we don't like to think of suffering for the gospel or for Jesus as a gift, but it is. We like thinking of salvation as a gift, and we take that gift willingly. But Paul reminds his Philippian friends there's another gift that comes from God, and it's the gift of suffering for Christ. Christian life is a life of effort. It's a life of opposition. It's striving for the gospel, and it's even suffering for it. Paul says elsewhere in Romans, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. See, it's assurance. It's about a guarantee. It's about assurance that he's talking. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see how the assurance goes together with the suffering? The guarantee of our salvation that we've actually inherited Christ's portion is that we will suffer with Christ and like Christ. What Paul's saying here to his beleaguered Philippian church, who are clearly worried about Paul, but Paul also knows they themselves are embattled with the same conflicts. 
Paul wants these Philippians to know their suffering is part of the gift granted to God, and that means good news for them, not bad news. Reframe your thinking, Philippians. Suffering is good, not bad. Now, as I said, it's a cumbersome couple of sentences here to unpack. So if you'll bear with me, let me just try and paraphrase the essence of what Paul's encouragement is. He's saying this. This is my paraphrase. The conflicts you are experiencing, Christian friends, may appear frightening and thus discourage you. Maybe you are tempted to interpret your suffering as a sign that God is displeased with you. But that is exactly wrong. You must interpret your suffering for the gospel as evidence of God's design to save you. Because suffering is the way to glory. Suffering is the way to salvation. Both your faith and your suffering are gifted. They are granted to you by God to save you. The suffering you face is a sign to your oppressors that they will be destroyed. It's a sign that they are enemies of God and the gospel. And your suffering is a sign to you that you will be saved as evident friends of God and the gospel. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, don't be discouraged. If you are contending, striving, standing firm for the gospel, it's a clear sign to you that you have received the salvation that you've trusted in Jesus for. Because it's through suffering that we will be glorified. Well, did Jesus say that? Yeah, Jesus did say that. John 15, 20, he's talking to his disciples. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him and who sent me. That's exactly what Paul just said. If you are persecuted on behalf of gospel, on behalf of the gospel of Christ, it's a sign that they don't know him. They are going to destruction. It's a sign that you are a disciple and you are saved. The apostles preached it this way in Acts 14. Same thing. It says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's how you arrive at salvation is through the tribulation, through the oppression, through the persecution, standing firm and striving for the gospel. Let's just remember it again. The Christian life is not effortless. But Paul wants to be clear, your salvation is from God. I can put it this way, becoming a Christian is effortless because we're not justified by works. We don't strive to be saved by God. If we just work hard enough, then he'll save us. No, 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 becoming a Christian is effortless. We're given the gift of faith, and we accept it by grace. That's our salvation, our faith, our trust. It is a gift granted by God. Becoming a Christian is effortless, but the Christian life is not effortless. Our sanctification is not effortless. Living a life worthy, standing firm, is not effortless. Don't confuse salvation with sanctification. The effort that we put forth in the Christian life is not to accomplish our salvation, but is evidence or assurance that we have salvation. And let me just say, so many Christians struggle with assurance. They struggle with doubts about whether they're really saved or not. And they struggle with assurance because they have not picked up their cross. They have not stood firm. They are not standing side by side with fellow believers striving for the gospel. And so they wonder if they really are Christians. And the Apostle Paul isn't surprised that they would be unsure. If they've never 
gone to church and linked arm in arm with believers and strove for the gospel. If in their life they've never picked up their cross, they've never put their hand to the plow, they've never experienced the contending for the faith, then they would be unsure. Because Paul says it's that contending, it's that striving, it's that effort in community, in unity, with one mind, with fellow believers. It's that facing the upstream swim against the culture and against friends and family. That is what gives us assurance. That is the clear sign of your salvation from God. It's hard to be an assured Christian if you've never experienced opposition, never stood in unity of spirit and mind with other Christians, never strove with them. Never submitted your life to live it worthily for the gospel. Christians without that experience are often worried if they are Christians. Brothers and sisters, the only way to know for sure, join the church. Strive with fellow believers. Swim upstream against the culture, against your flesh, against your idols. Live the life of a Christian and you will find out it will be a clear sign to you that you are on the side of salvation and not destruction. Or, and this is good news, maybe it'll be a clear sign that you're actually on the side of destruction and you need to get onto the other side. And that's not a bad thing to find out. In fact, that's the most important thing you can find out if you're one of these in-between Christians that isn't really sure. You want to find out? Engage in the conflict. Well, what conflict? That's how Paul wraps it up engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Living a life worthy of the gospel is contending in a shared conflict. What conflict did the Philippians see and hear that Paul was engaged in? Well, Paul was in all kinds of conflicts. If we're talking about the Philippians, you remember in Philippi he cast out a demon, so there's a direct spiritual conflict, and then he was thrown into jail, so there's a cultural conflict. He was preaching the gospel at the time, so there's a religious conflict. He's been in front of the Roman governor Felix recently, so there's a Roman Empire conflict. He's written about his opponents who are preaching out of rivalry, so they're, and in chapter 3 he's going to mention the Judaizers again, so there's internal church conflict. I mean, take your pick. The text isn't really definitive exactly about which conflict Paul is talking about here. The Philippians obviously know what conflict specifically he's talking about, and they share that conflict because they're engaged in the same conflict. But I'll just say you can pick all of them or any of them. You can pick Paul's conflict with paganism and Gnosticism. We share that. You remember his debates in the marketplaces? They saw his conflict with the Judaizers and the false apostles. Sometimes we face opposition within our own ranks. There are wolves in sheep's clothing within the church. And they saw Paul's conflict with the Roman Empire and the authorities. They saw all of that, him being in jail, and and we face that opposition. We're in that conflict with our culture and our society. I thought of a fourth one here after I wrote this. Paul was also wrestling with his own flesh. I'm sure, well, they read about and they saw Paul's conflict with his own sinfulness as he struggled to live the Christian life. And so you could add a fourth one up there the shared conflict that we have with our flesh and with sin. You will face opposition if you stand for the gospel. But it's not to dismay you, it's to assure you that you have a share in Jesus and in his inheritance if you join in this same conflict with other disciples. The reality of the Christian faith is that you and I will share in the same opposition that Jesus had and that Paul had that we all have. 
It's not a question of if there will be opposition, if there will be struggle, but how will we respond to it? And really, all of Philippians chapter 1 is sort of a handbook for how Christians are meant to reframe and react to conflict and to opposition and to suffering. Paul says, I want you Philippians to live a life worthy of the gospel. And if you just take Philippians chapter 1, that is like a handbook of how you deal with suffering, how you deal with being in jail, how you deal with opposition, how you deal with slander, how you deal with struggle, how you deal with persecution. You reframe everything through the gospel. But as Paul wraps up chapter 1 here, he says, this is what you do. You want to follow this handbook? You want to live a manner worthy of the gospel? Then be a gospel citizen. Stand firm in unity, side by side with other disciples, with other believers, contending for the gospel without any fear of anything our opposition does, confident of your salvation. That's how you deal with conflict. That's how you deal with opposition. And that's my prayer for us. I pray that for us as a church, as Lakeside, let's, let's strive to make Lakeside a church that models this kind of worthy gospel citizenship, that draws others into living a life that gives them assurance of their salvation, that they are participants with Jesus in his suffering, and therefore inheritors of his resurrection. let's, Let's be a church that equips one another the way Paul is trying to equip the Philippian church here. Let's equip each one of us for this steadfast joy that is in the midst of it. And the reason that I say joy is you have to realize the verse right before this, when Paul says that he is confident that he's going to be released, he says, I know that I'm going to be released for your joy and giving you cause to glory in Christ. Sorry, I misremember. He says, I'm going to be released for your benefit, for your profit, for your maturing, and for your joy, and you will have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. He just said that a sentence before he underlines all of this standing steadfast in conflict and opposition. So if I'm, if I'm reading Philippians chapter 1, and Paul says there's going to be maturity, there's going to be growth, there's going to be joy, there's going to be opportunity to glorify God, and then he says this is the Christian life, is standing firm in the face of opposition, you're like, where did the joy go? <laughs> but Paul has not got Alzheimer's. He knows what he just wrote. And this is the thing, this is why Philippians is the book of joy, is that we have to understand when you reframe everything through the gospel, this is joyful Christian living. This is where our joy is found. Not in bending to the opposition, not in in giving in to those that oppose us, not in reframing our things to the ways of the world, but standing firm together in unity, contending for the gospel without fear, confident of our salvation. That is Christian joy. And that is a life manner worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your gospel turns this whole world upside down. We look around, we see it's a world that needs to be turned upside down because it isn't good the way it is right now. And Father, you turn our life around, and we need that because if we react to the world out of our flesh, we will get it backwards. And so we thank you that we have this church, that we can stand side by side, that we are in unity on the things of the gospel, that we don't want to strive and contend for the sake of contention, but only strive and contend for the sake of the gospel, that we are cautious that we are conservative in the sense that we are wary of change for change's sake. 
And then we always come back to this plumb line. We come back to this anchor. We come back to this true weight, the weight of the gospel and the plumb line of your word. And this tells us where we stand. This tells us what we contend for. This tells us where our joy and our assurance is found. Father God, I thank you that you're building that kind of church here at Lakeside. And Father, I pray for the miracle of of more people coming into that. Not that we have more people here at Lakeside, but that we have more brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray for the everyday miracle of salvation, that people might know that they have salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and that they can enter into this kind of joyful life. It's not an effortless life, but it's a joyful life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.